Hello everyone, PJ Thumb here. Professor James Warren is one of the giants of the field of Singapore history, but he doesn't receive as much attention from the non-academic world as he should because he works on subaltern history, history from below, the history of people who are often forgotten and overlooked, even in their own time. Professor Warren is famous for two books in particular, Aku and Karayuki-san, a history of prostitution in Singapore from 1870 to 1940, and Rickshaw Cooley, a history of rickshaw drivers in Singapore 1880 to 1940. If you read only one history of pre-World War II Singapore, I'd actually recommend that you read Rickshaw Cooley, rather than the endless books about rich traders and European colonialists who actually formed a tiny minority of the colony. Rickshaw Cooley is a real history of the people who made Singapore, the people of Singapore, which is why Warren subtitled the book A People's History of Singapore 1880-1940. In this speech, delivered in January 2019 at the National Library of Singapore, he reflects on a long career working on Singapore and raises some issues for discussion about the future of Singapore historical study. Looking back to the future, some reflections on researching and writing an urban social history of Singapore. I want to begin by thanking the History Department, NUS, for supporting Dr. Fiona Williamson's panel, Looking Back and Looking Forward, The Shape of Singapore's Social and Urban History. I would also like to thank Professor Brenda Yeo for agreeing to chair this panel. As envisioned by Dr. Williamson, I will attempt to share some insights based on my life and work and raise some issues for discussion concerning Singapore's social and urban history. I start this discussion from the premise that historians generally have had a pathological disinclination to want to talk about the relationship between their life and work and the source of their practice, namely their ideas and methods. Ludmila Jordanova notes in her important book, History and Practice, that the moral commitments of historians and the nature of their values need to be made explicit whenever possible. She stresses that historians, precisely because of their professional obligations, must be able to explain to the public the processes through which the historical research and judgments are reached. I want to begin by first looking back before turning to the topic of researching and writing about Singapore's history in the future. The origin of my work on Singapore began in personal experience rather than with books and formal training. In a very real sense, my interest in studying about Singapore society and history, both from an interdisciplinary and cross-cultural perspectives, started at the edge. My introduction to Southeast Asia was based on witnessing the traumatic experience of adjustment of a maritime nomadic people to a sedentary way of life, a pariah people who socially and politically were at the edge, on the margin of society and history. One of the important lessons I drew from that late 1960s Peace Corps experience and my subsequent research about the adjustments of this maritime nomadic peoples to a sedentary way of life is that in certain societies, at particular moments in time, the most important factor in assessing the scope and rate of change is the rise and decline in population. 
The connection, albeit implicit, between this earlier research and the Singapore work was a concern to initiate a major project on the role and reproduction of labor in a colonial urban context. At the start of 1976, I wanted to undertake comparative work on Manila, Jakarta, and Singapore in the 19th and 20th centuries. I soon abandoned the idea, however, after making trips to the archives in Jakarta and Manila, as the source materials were too fragmented to attempt such a comparison. Nevertheless, I was still interested in exploring in what circumstances and in what ways were social structures in a given society affected by the impact of particular processes and events, like migration, calamity, the character of labor, and the nature of work and specific occupations under colonial rule in an urban context. The books on the rickshaw pullers and prostitutes were conceptually inspired in part by Manuel Castell's work on the ways in which politics, markets, and technology could transform cities and the social and political disposition of public life. I feel 1978 was a crucial year in my life. It was then that I first encountered the coroner's records for Singapore, which led me to seriously consider bringing other ordinary people's past stories and visions to life. The Singapore books, Rickshaw Cooley and Aku and Karayuki-san, first imagined through the lens of this unique source, enable me to explore the unsettling effects and provocative insights of the sojourner as human subject and agent rather than as a victim or object of pity per se. The books thus reflected on more conventional responses to the history writing of Singapore from the standpoint of near invisible subjects and the absence of the voices of the peoples without history in the writing of Singapore's social, regional, and global history and imagined how we might respond otherwise. It seemed to me there was a more general question of real neglect. Many social scientists and historians then were grazing on documents and archives to support studies of agrarian reform, the Green Revolution, and the social history of rural unrest and change. There was then, as now, a felt need also for studies of cities under colonial rule. These histories would be wider and encompass a range of human activities and be as much concerned with the narrative of event as with the analysis of structures and institutions. Now let me turn to the view from below perspective. History has largely been written from the top down. It has been an account of the victors, the kings, the rich, and above all, of the articulate. But, quote, of the common run of human beings, wrote W.E.B. Dubois, and particularly of the half or wholly submerged working group, the world has saved all too little of the authentic record and tried to forget or ignore even the little saved. Should the character and condition of Singapore's laboring masses, past and present, play a minor role in the historiography of the nation and the national imaginary? Must they? The answer to the first question, at least, seems clear. The most conservative standards of evidence and proof require that Singapore historiography include a history of the inarticulate. Edward Thompson, in his majestic Making of the English Working Class, first identified not only the general problem of reconstructing the lives and circumstances of ordinary workers, like rickshaw pullers and prostitutes, he also grasped the absolute necessity of attempting to understand people in the past 
as far as the historian is able to do so, in light of their own experience. Here it is important to stress, too, that the historians, like Gerda Lerner and myself, in the context of Singapore's history, have fought against formal recognition of the impression that ordinary women have not had a significant past, a reality and subject not worth recording. To raise questions about the values and attributes which historians have often brought to their interpretation of Singapore's past unmistakably tells us about the methods by which that history has been studied and written. Gerda Lerner and Joan Kelly Gadol have provided an illuminating set of insights about historians' conceptual tools being invested with power to exclude women, being geared towards revealing more about male experience rather than human experience writ large. Both Rickshaw Cooley and Aku and Karayuki-san raised a key issue that will continue to confront historians of Singapore in the coming decades. Quote, what would Singapore history be like if it was seen through the eyes of women and ordered by the values they define? Specifically, gender has to be finally established as a category of historical and social analysis of the same order as class and ethnicity in the future shaping and consideration of the Singapore past. The perspective from below had an immediate appeal to historians like myself, anxious to broaden the boundaries of our discipline, to open up new areas of research, and, above all, to explore the historical experiences of those Asian men and women whose existence has so often been ignored, taken for granted, or merely mentioned in passing in mainstream history. But the significance of the history from below approach goes deeper than merely providing historians like me with an opportunity to show we can be imaginative and innovatory. It also provides a means for restoring their history to social groups who may have thought they lost it or who were unaware that their autonomous history existed. Initially, I planned to write a history of colonial Singapore about the people of the lower stratum that would include all sorts of occupations along the river, on the docks, in the factories, and the countryside. But I soon realized this project was too ambitious to handle properly in a single volume. Shortly afterwards, while studying some historical photographs of Singapore, it suddenly struck me that I should concentrate my efforts on attempting to write a history of the rickshaw coolies. The image of the rickshaw puller was captured in nearly every historical photo I looked at in 1978. However, their ubiquitous presence in the historical record had been either ignored or inadvertently missed by most others. By researching the wide range of experience of working people, like rickshaw pullers and prostitutes, I felt basic changes in Singapore society, colonial policy and practice, and the lives of Chinese immigrants and their ties with China could be revealed. I took up the challenge to go in search of the stories of those who largely remain nameless and unrecognized in most histories of Singapore the little people of your grandparents' and great-grandparents' generations. Between the 1880s and 1930s, hundreds of thousands of Chinese sojourners from the impoverished, strife-torn, famine-prone provinces of southeastern China came to Singapore in search of good fortune. Most of these men were either single or had left their families behind. Many died in the new land, often succumbing to disease, the ravages of work, or opium, as they ran between the shafts of rickshaws, 
heaved coal in the belly of a steamer or unloaded the commodities of an empire at dockside. However, despite the physical hardship in grinding poverty, many managed to send money back to their families, as they had promised at a time when old ties still mattered. More importantly for Singapore, many others, including thousands of women, put down roots and raised families in a crucially important period of the city's history. At that time, Singapore's Chinatowns were still congested, dirty and disease-ridden, and centers of gambling, prostitution, and crime. Kreta Ayer was depicted in government-commissioned reports as a congestion of rooming houses of unmarked laneways where rickshaw pullers smoked opium and lay with Chinese and Japanese prostitutes. But it was not easy to also see the emerging contrasting truth that there were among these migrant bachelors some upstanding families living there that would survive the Great Depression and the Second World War to help redefine what constitutes the historical mainstream in Singapore now. The perennial problem facing the historian has always been achieving a balance in the historical record. Frequently, this record is written by the empowered, such as the colonial authorities. As such, their attentions are, naturally enough, laden with their own preconceptions, social biases, and self-interests. Their accounts have often been employed to provide a contrast and sometimes justification for a particular policy or attitude. The history of the other, the marginalized or little people, as I have noted, is too often lost, overlooked, or never recorded. It may be an oral tradition which has been lost in cultural assimilation or integration. Their structures may be temporary, and their material culture may be used and reused until it is worn away. Evidence of their lives literally disappears, leaving little for the historians. The further back historians go in seeking to reconstruct the lives of the lower orders in Singapore and elsewhere, the more restricted the range of sources at their disposal. Women and the economically marginal seldom deposit documents and records of the past in the places traditionally attractive to historians. When documents have been found in the form of diaries and letters, there is a sense of singularity about them, especially where women are concerned in Singapore. That these diaries, memoirs, and letters of the privilege frequently serve to deny or transform the far less pleasant realities of life in colonial Singapore certainly appears to be the case when they are read in juxtaposition with a source like the coroner's records and newspaper accounts. They present another kind of colonial experience in Singapore through the eyes of less well-placed women. Photographer and artist Chia Ike Bang has recently written, quote, After reading Warren's book, I was overwhelmed by the fact that these Karayuki-sans have been forgotten, erased from history. These questions lingered in my mind. Why are we not told? What happened to them after the Second World War? These questions led Ike Bang on a journey of self-discovery to want to know more about these women and the so-called Little Japan that existed in the heart of Singapore, which disappeared after World War II. Hence, under such circumstances, it is possible that historians may well continue the practice of writing ordinary women out of Singapore's history by acting like professional magicians, making women literally disappear before our very eyes. 
It was critical that I listened to the voices of those laboring classes who struggled for the right to exist on the streets of Singapore, so that their voices would be heard, their stories told, and aspects of their culture could survive. The historical memory of Singaporean society is constituted not of one single strand, but rather of a tangled skein. There is a dominant memory carefully and selectively recorded for posterity of the articulate and powerful, and there are the alternative memories of the past based upon the testimony of the underclasses, the underprivileged, and the defeated, the history and tradition of the little people. These subordinate or subaltern memories are a gift of equal importance for the current and future generations who will take up that history and traditions that reveal what is essential about the human condition, which otherwise might not be told, and shape it to their own needs as Singapore's future unfolds. What I wanted to create was a social history of the times of the rickshaw coolies and prostitutes based on the experience of ordinary individuals living and working in Singapore, while also paying careful attention to the larger historical influences and economic forces, the institutions, processes, and interactions which determine their fates. Such an approach to writing the history of Singapore enables the historian to confront fundamental questions about the nature of migration, colonial urbanism, and the laboring classes and trace how and why a tidewater colonial port city like Singapore developed, but from the bottom up rather than the top down. But how does one manage to research and write a people's history? Are there new sources to be tapped, or new ways of using more traditional ones? Now let me turn briefly to my initial encounter in the archives and with the sources. I first went to Singapore in 1978 and subsequently made six more annual trips in relation to the research for rickshaw coolie. During the course of these visits, I saw Singapore rapidly transformed from abject post-war colonial neglect to the state of economic preeminence it now holds in the region and world. Much of the work on the Singapore project was done with colonial office records, unpublished papers, and interviews. At all times and all places, the lower one goes in the social system, the poorer becomes the documentation. The only sectors of the lower classes about which anything more than an impressionistic account has been kept are invariably persecuted minorities, criminals, the destitute, and the infirm. Police dossiers, judicial records, the registers of charitable institutions and hospitals often supply much of the information on such sectors especially in societies with a long tradition of heavy bureaucratic and police control like Singapore in the early 20th century. However, in the storeroom of the subordinate court building in Havelock Square, I made an extraordinary discovery. When I first stepped into the crowded basement of the Singapore's coroner's court in 1978, I little imagined I was embarking on an odyssey which would eventually touch the hearts and minds of many in Singapore. When the door was unlocked for me after several months of fruitless searching, I gained entry to a collection of several hundred unclassified volumes stacked more than a meter high against the wall. I started to dig, and there was just about everything I could have imagined. Coroner's inquests, coroner's views, suicide notes, drafts of letters, even recipes and household bills. 
Without stopping to rest, I poured through the cases and files for the entire day and was introduced to the beginning of an enormous cast of ordinary men and women. From these humble beginnings has arisen a plethora of Singaporean-produced written and dramatic works which explore aspects of the lives of coolies and prostitutes in colonial Singapore based on rickshaw coolie and Aku and Karyuki-san. I want to return to the impact that both books have had in artistic and literary circles shortly. The project for me was to shape a conceptual and analytical approach for writing the past and future relations and history of Singapore, based upon links between large-scale processes and microdynamic experiences, occurring in Singapore and in rural China and Japan in the years between 1879 and 1940. And the historical projects still remain there for you now to frame and tease out similar inextricable links between the life of the city-state and particular rural areas of South Asia, the Philippines, Indonesia, and the People's Republic of China. The narrative ought to move between these areas of Asia as it sets out its evidence on the long-term forces and structures which determine individual actions and everyday lives. In earlier publications, I noted that the challenge facing social historians of modern Asia is to discover the right combination of sources to establish a more comprehensive interpretation of the past. However, the chronic problem facing the social historian is the uneven nature of the source material available for certain people, places, and periods. How can one create a detailed historical reconstruction and measure change if the documents as instruments of measurement are scarce, non-existent, or themselves changing. I am always looking for data that can be selected or constructed by reason of comparability, whereby the historical fact, a traffic accident, homicide, or suicide, can be transformed into the historian's raw material, time. This fundamental operation for writing the urban history of Singapore constitutes what the French scholars of the Annal School called serial history. This approach offers the advantage of substituting for the elusive event, process, but in working outward and upward to discern patterns and trends, questions are invariably raised about the transactions of everyday life and the events or situation. Now let me turn to the knot. The coroner's records had the advantage of presenting such situations or events that could be explored from more than just one point of view and from a variety of perspectives. Obviously, there was a great deal there that could be learned from this sea of colonial inquests and inquiries that is still the case now, concerning the historiographical significance of the current coroner's court records for writing the future history of Singapore. It was when life was framed in death that the picture was really hung up, observed Henry James. Let me now turn to the event. In the event, or what is usually called the situation or a moment of truth, is a developed notion of historical conjunction, a notion of an individual or a group of individuals, such as rickshaw pullers or Japanese prostitutes, Bangladesh construction workers or Filipino maids, caught up in a situation which could ruin or make them, what Alexander Solzhenitsyn describes in The Oak and Calf as a knot. 
derived from the mathematical concept nodal point, the knot he wrote, quote, suggests a point in history when the complex and interrelated issues of the time find their sharpest focus and where the essential, and I would add otherwise frequently hidden, forces of the historical process are revealed. The knot or event is the point of crisis, the moment of truth, in which the liniments of an individual life or of society at large are laid bare. In Singapore, as elsewhere in Asia, such knots or events were commonplace and remain so today. Some of the events buried in a coroner's inquest were like a litmus test, revealing the otherwise hidden dynamic and structures of a city and a society at a particular moment in time. The reality was often bleak and laced with irony, as within the event, often laid bare, was the broken-down matter of life. Historians will find that certain details and moments of such events and their entangled lives, often tinged with irony, will remain unknowable. Consequently, an urban history from below that one can recover and write is based only on innumerable fragments of past lives. A major lesson for confronting this difficulty is that history does not work to predetermine goals nor does it muster all individuals and their perspectives into harmony, so one is driven back to a view of human activity as a confused and complex groping towards ends which vary, conflict, and to a large extent remain undefined. The task of the social historian of Singapore is to grasp that complexity. The conventional wisdom of social history, however, must recognize such lacuna or great silences as well as areas where the historian holds no more than a thin, shriveled tissue in the hand. I want to finish here by simply stating that the event or knots in both volumes yield important stories about the relationship between structure and agency that provided truths about the nature of the work of coolies and prostitutes in their worlds, and enabled me to waken the ghosts of Smith Street and Boogie Street and breathe life into the discipline of history. Now let me turn to prosopography, briefly. Here we're concerned with the matter of method. It seems clear that we can strengthen our hand in attempting to write about ordinary men and women in Singapore's urban history through prosopography, or the method of collective biography, taking whenever possible the total lifespan of the individuals as the unit of investigation. Prosopography is the exploration of the common background characteristics of a group of people. For example, rickshaw pullers, prostitutes, construction workers, gardeners, or domestic servants, by means of a collective study of their lives. The purpose of prosopography, wrote Lawrence Stone, quote, is to make sense of political actions, to help explain ideological or cultural exchange, to identify social reality and to describe and analyze with precision the structure of society and the degree and nature of the movements within it. Through this technique and others developed in the Annal School in France, historians have been able to restore the common man and woman to history, community, and nation. Here we are concerned with not only small group dynamics, but also with what we can call the mass school, large numbers of people about whom little or nothing very detailed are to be known since they have little or no written testimony. 
This technique compelled me to pay close attention to the disparate experiences, values, and motives of a comparatively small group of rickshaw coolies and prostitutes in diverse contexts and sequences of experience in Singapore in order to piece together the patterns and meanings of their lives for the majority of rickshaw men and Aku and Karayuki-san. Collective biography is critical in creating a non-institutional thematic framework for the urban social history of Singapore today, focusing on men and women at work, demonstrating an interdependence and sense of liminality between Bangladesh, the Philippines, Indonesia, the PRC, and Singapore, encompassing the stories of those who largely remain nameless and unrecognized in most present histories. The little people of your grandparents' and great-grandparents' generation from the impoverished, famine-prone, strife-torn provinces of southeastern China and India. Today, as in the past, despite the physical hardship and grinding poverty, they manage to send money back to their parents or families in Bangladesh, Java, and the Philippines. What I am suggesting is that, in the new urban history of Singapore, these little people, the Filipino maid, Javanese cook, Bangladeshi laborer, the PRC hostess, and the local factory worker should all be visibly present as part of the changing urban environment and story of Singapore today. The task is clear. If historians, social analysts, or public citizens are to research and write about ordinary men and women in Singapore, past and present, they must first fashion an approach that integrates experience with the techniques of microhistory and prosopography. Microhistory as a practice is essentially based on the reduction of the scale of observation or analysis. The unifying principle of all microhistorical research is the belief that point-blank observations will reveal factors previously unobserved, phenomena previously considered sufficiently understood, also assume completely new meanings by altering the scale of observation. So what would a new urban history of Singapore look like? How should one begin? Well, first, by insistently linking the big events in the Asian region to the lives of the little people in Singapore, then tracing traditional patterns of work and family in neighboring rural societies torn apart by national disasters, ethnic conflict, shifts in the global economy, and as a consequence of industrialization. One would then have to define who they are, move on to their experiences as laborers, maids, factory hands, and sex workers, as migrants in present-day Singapore, and finally focus upon their working conditions during a critical period in Singapore's development. Here, the mingled lives and occupations of these ordinary men and women serve as lesser-known turning points to chart the pace of Singapore's development and the speed of a new century by reconciling social forces with individual passions and aspirations. As in my earlier work on Singapore, I hope future historians, geographers, and social anthropologists will delve in unusual depth into the micro-worlds of Singapore's laboring communities, at the same time illuminating broader macro-societal issues in both Singapore and the region specifically involving large segments of contemporary Singapore society, as well as the meaning of progress and modernity.
Now let me turn to the response to Rickshaw Cooley and Aku and Kariyuki San. Initially, first, more generally. Singapore's response to Rickshaw Cooley and Aku and Kariyuki San and the cultural and historical reevaluation that ensued came primarily from the theater world and a young, educated, emergent middle class coming to grips with their grandparents' history and heritage. They generally poured their energies and talents into a revisionist history of Singapore through theater, dance, and music. People reacted strongly to both books, especially those living and working beyond the boundaries of the academy. The range of responses from readers was remarkable, as the books sent a soul-searching shiver down the spine of Singapore society. They received widespread coverage in the newspapers, especially rickshaw coolie in the Chinese press. Elsewhere, as a historian, I have recounted how I first met Guo Pao Kun in a coffee shop in Pagoda Street, who immediately wanted to know why I had written rickshaw coolie. There was an avalanche of why questions in that remarkable meeting. The atmosphere was electric. There was also an intuitive sense of recognition of being in the presence of a kindred spirit. I realized that this person was going to have a deep significance in my life, and I knew that from the very first moments of my initial encounter with Guo Pao Kun, Singapore's leading dramatist, cultural worker, teacher, and pioneering founder of the Practice Performing Arts School, the Theatre Practice, and the Substation. Time passed quickly that morning. We talked about origins, survival, and endurance, Hour after hour, we spoke of the stories of the past and particular worlds that we had never entirely left behind. Throughout history, in diasporic communities, the elderly told stories to the young. Storytelling is a way of understanding and passing down cultural and community values and a sense of the past, especially for migrants in a new place and those unfortunate enough to be living in a time of trouble. As the exchange unfolded, it was apparent to me that we both had a passion for storytelling inherited from our diasporic forebears. Baokun taught an entire generation of directors and playwrights to be proponents of devised theater in which they did research and improvisation with a cast before writing a script. There was recognition by the public through this new form of social and historical analysis that Guo Pao Kun and his protégés, particularly Ong King Sing, were not only dealing with conscious open memory, but the whole area of historical memory, which sometimes was either truncated or totally suppressed. In this genre, Guo wrote and produced My Grandfather in the Cellar, based on rickshaw coolie. Ong's theater work Singapore produced a major opera docudrama dance production based on Aku and Karyuki San. The production, titled Broken Birds, with a cast of 24, was staged outdoors at the base of Fort Canning Hill for three weeks in 1995, and an audience of over 1,000 each evening learned about an aspect of their history that was seemingly entirely new to them. Several years later, in 1997, another very exciting theater works project, Workhorse Afloat, which was also inspired by rickshaw coolie, juxtaposed the circumstances and situations of the rickshaw coolies at the turn of the century with that of the current Indian migrant workers in Singapore. A piece of collaborative theater, Workhorse Afloat, was conceived and directed by Ong King Singh 
featuring guest filmmaker Wu Wenguang, an award-winning documentary filmmaker from Beijing, working together with Singapore's award-winning short filmmaker K. Raja Gopal. Ang was one of Singapore's most creative directors, and much of his earlier work often concerned the potential power of a collection of past voices fused together and reconstructed in time, their time and our time, as we live in the present moment. One of the major themes highlighted in his production in my books is the interconnectedness of the modern world. If the 19th century was Hans Kohn's Age of Nationalism, the time of your parents in the 20th century was the era of nationalism, what Vaclav Havel called a single interconnected civilization. In Ang's plays and pages of my book, the world has changed. Here, ordinary men and women move abroad and live in distant regions. Family debts in Guangdong and Amakusa Island are paid off by women and young girls working as laborers, domestics, and prostitutes in Singapore. I have learned because of the immediacy of theater and its wider reach, historians should consider collaborating with theater practitioners as another means of communicating the results of their dialogue with the past. Now let me turn to the future briefly. I want to look at some recent attempts to write the urban history of Singapore from the bottom up. Has much changed in Singapore since the days of the rickshaw pullers in Karayuki-san? What is the relationship between ourselves, when either defined as national, ethnic, or other collective terms, and the history of the processes of development and the meaning of becoming modern at the start of the 21st century in Singapore? Li Li Chung, introducing Chia Aikbeng's photographic project documenting the Bugis Street area when it was Little Japan from the 1880s to the 1940s, notes Singapore today still has unaccompanied low-cost male labor as well as prostitutes from neighboring countries and red-light areas like Geelong. However, the nationalities are different now. Temporary workers from South Asia and China and women from Southeast Asia and China. Li Li Chung writes, Today Galen is more than a red-light district. It's food, Buddhist amulets, fortune-telling, Dorians, yet so few of us Singaporeans know or think about these foreign men and women, especially those invisible to us, much less even acknowledge their contribution to Singapore's economic success, both then and now. Similarly, Wiener Pun, the Singapore-born, Harvard-educated international lawyer and award-winning novelist, remembered when she was little playing inside Shaw Towers, where her father worked in an office building constructed on the, quote, ghostly remains of the Japanese red-light district where the Karayuki-san and rickshaw pullers daily pursued their occupations. Like Li Li Chung and Chia Aikbeng, Wiener Pun emphatically states that all ghosts of the past, however, were not buried. In her novel, The Great Impresario Oguri, inspired by Aku and Karayuki-san, she notes Singapore is still a bustling port, the Clapham Junction of the Eastern Seas, located in the heart of Southeast Asia, in a region in which young girls are still regularly sold for sex. Can we still talk about the past-present relationship in the same way, utilizing the same historical approaches and methodologies to describe and analyze these trajectories of the development and modernizing process in Singapore? 
Traditional periodization concerning progress and development can provide a pattern and meaning for the most important structural changes taking place in society. But what counts is the explicit analysis of the relationship between each change, each development, for its impact on ordinary women as well as men, irrespective of whether they come from different cultural or political traditions, but especially because they are inextricably bound up as product and fate with the process of Singapore becoming modern. Young Singaporean novelists, dramatists, biographers, and historians, particularly oral historians, want to embrace the city's little-known history, past and present, of ordinary people, as the small heroes they often are, even if it's confronting, and ask, where do I find more information about this? They have already assembled some fundamental assessments of the national character of urban Singapore. Their plays, short stories, novels, essays, and artwork are rich in local character celebration and criticism. I believe they have been involved in an extremely important episode in the cultural and political history of their times, namely the creation of a new theatrical, literary, and artistic social project and voices in order to encourage deeper investigation and complex thinking about the transformation of historical understanding and historical memory in Singapore. Now let me finish briefly on a note about being a historian. In this talk, I have attempted, albeit briefly, to identify specific areas in which history from below forces us to reconsider some of our basic assumptions about the structure and methodology of the traditional history of Singapore. The historian Manning Clark tells us, needs to possess a vision that can allow one to write and teach about the things that really matter. Quote, he mustn't sneer, he mustn't mock. The historian has to write with a belief that his vision will stir up a response in the audience. Clark goes on, quote, It is like an actor on a revolving stage. He or she has a brief time in which to recite his or her work. He's got to hold the audience, end quote. He or she must also hope that they have used their time on the stage well, because there are additional audiences to be addressed especially when attempting to find a place in the narrative for the little people. If we fail as historians to engage the broader audience while talking only to ourselves, then novelists, dramatists, photographers, and artists will deliver the future urban history of Singapore to the wider public and rightly influence the way people create historical memory and meaning. Thank you. And that was Professor James Warren. Be sure to check out his book, Rickshaw Cooley, A People's History of Singapore, 1880-1940. Next week, tune in to Southeast Asia Dispatches, our fortnightly podcast series bringing you news, interviews and commentary from around Southeast Asia. And check out our website at newnarrative.com for more stories from Southeast Asia. And if you enjoy what we're doing, please do support our work by becoming a member of New Narrative at newnarrative.com slash join. Membership start at just 52 US dollars a year, that's just one US dollar a week. Or... If you don't want to join right now, that's cool. You can donate at newnarrative.com slash donate. Learn more about us at newnarrative.com slash hello. This is PJ Thumb wishing all our listeners a great week ahead. Take care. See you soon.